Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for giving us another day of life. We thank you for the fact that most, if not all of us, um, have put our faith in you and those that haven't. We do pray that they would turn to you. And we're going to be reading your word today. And we know the power is in your word, not in ours. And we do pray that that will be used effectively, not only in unbelievers' lives to bring them to you, but also for us to be sanctified and become more like you. We thank you for this church and for this body of Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so for today we want to look at the first two verses in Jude. So we're going to be looking at Jude 1 and 2. And yes, we are going to go through this book slowly. And Christy just came up to me and she said, I listened to three sermons on Jude this last week and it's packed. And it's like, yeah, you could preach on this for a long time because it's very rich and deep. And sometimes when we study God's word, we do it almost like a 5,000 foot view. And what we really need to do is, is dive our plane down and get deep into the word and understand the meaning of the, those words that can change our lives. So we want to start with Jude 1 and 2. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So just to give you a, a review, last week we did an introduction to Jude. We learned that Jude was the brother of James, the half-brother of this is working now, I think. Yeah. The half-brother of Jesus. And Jude wore the title of Jesus' bond slave. We saw that the letter was probably written between 60 and 70 AD. We learned that certain people had crept into the church and influenced others to presume upon God's grace. This prompted Jude to write this specific letter. Now we open to verses 1 and 2, and we'll be looking at our position in Christ. We can find our identity in many things in our day and age. We can see our worth in our job, marriage, what friends we have, and even what church we go to. But we need to learn to where our true identity lies. Jude is a great example for us. Jude could have easily capitalized on being the half-brother of Jesus, but instead he rejoices in his position as a bond-slave of Jesus Christ. The word servant has been mistranslated, has been, not been translated correctly from the Greek in this passage and in many other passages. I have talked to some, um, I have friends that actually did the ESV translation, and they readily admit that they did not use that word for a specific reason, and that was based on our history of over 400 years ago. The word is not diakonize, which means servant, but it's actually, the word is doulos, which means slave. Words matter, 
And we cannot just change a word because it may have some negative connotation because of our past history. We must be careful not to contextualize scripture to our modern day culture. And we're watching people do that all around us. This is a good example of how we can diminish the picture that the writer is trying to convey to us. We need to understand what a word meant when Jude wrote his letter. As I said, the correct word is doulos, which means slave. The word doulos appears about 120 times in the New Testament. This word means so much more than a servant. A servant is one that is hired for a specific task or amount of time, but outside of that time, they have the freedom to live the way they want. Not so with a slave. A slave is owned 24-7. A slave is not free to do whatever he or she wants to do. We have to get out of our mind the racial aspect of slavery too, of our American slavery. There were slaves of many ethnic groups in different social standings in the community during the New Testament time. Being a slave did not automatically mean that you were the lowest of society. There were doctors, lawyers, and others that were slaves. Again, hard for us to understand if we read our history and culture into the text. The humility of Jude is seen in this first verse. Jude could have appealed to his readers by extolling that he was the half-brother of Jesus. Instead, he finds great honor in calling himself the bondslave of Jesus Christ. What a change we see in Jude from earlier in the Gospels before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what we covered last week, that they, him and his brother got saved after the resurrection. Here is my rhetorical question for you, and you don't need to raise your hand. But, oh wait, I'm sorry. The term doulos is a designation of honor for those serving the Lord Jesus Christ as his slave. We have a history in scripture of men who were called into the service of God who identified themselves as the slaves of the Lord. Now this is my rhetorical question to you. How many of us actually thought about the fact that we are slaves this week, other than the people that I talked to about my sermon this week. <laughs> That's something we probably don't do very often. Well, here is where the word becomes important for us. This identity of being a slave to Christ is for all of us that profess to be his. Because this is our identity in Christ, we need to understand the marks of being a slave of Christ. We're going to look this morning at five marks of what it means to be a slave to Christ. We are owned, we are to submit, we are to be devoted, we are to be dependent, and we are to be accountable to our master. Let's look at the first mark. Our master owns us 100%. We were born slaves to sin, but we were purchased by Christ to become his slave. We are his property 100%. We were purchased with the greatest price, his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And in Romans 6, 17 and 18, we read, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart of, to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. The reality is that we are either slaves of sin or slaves to Christ. There is no one who really has freedom and we are all slaves. The question is, are we a slave to our sin, continuing to live for our fleshly sinful passions, or are we a slave to Christ, living for his glory? Christ did not purchase just part of us. He purchased our entire being, soul and body. We belong to him. He owns our affections, our gifts, our will, and our emotions. This runs directly opposed to the thinking of the world. We are to line our entire life up with what his word says in every area. If we take it upon ourselves to live for ourselves, then we are rebelling against the, his ownership of us. Our second mark is our master demands complete submission. Just as in the Roman times, slaves were expected to give 100% submission to their masters, so we are supposed to give 100% submission to our Lord. Our duty is to obey and carry out the wishes of our master, Jesus Christ. Submission to the Lordship of Christ is shown in our obedience to his word. Obedience is the mark of a true believer in Christ. In Romans 14, 7 through 8, it says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The third mark is our master demands complete devotion. Slaves were expected to have the total devotion to their masters. Just as they had total devotion, we are called to have total devotion to our Lord. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard about it, have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then the fourth mark is we are 100% dependent upon our Lord. Just as slaves depended upon their masters for all their basic needs in life, we are dependent upon our Lord knowing he will supply all of our needs. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 24 through 33, the following. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is, it, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky that they do not sow nor reap nor gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And which of you by wor worrying can add a single day to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you that not even, one, even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What are we to eat? Or what are we to drink? Or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then listen to this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be provided to you. So we're dependent upon our Lord. So we have seen that we are owned, we are to submit, we are to be devoted, and we are to be dependent upon our master, which leads us to the fifth mark. We are accountable only to our Lord and master. Just as the first century slaves were fully accountable to their masters, so we are fully accountable to our Lord. All of our actions and thoughts are to be pleasing to the Lord. We will stand before the Lord and give an account of our life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. And that isn't saying you're earning your merit. And if you're confused on that, I can take time later and explain to you that in a greater way. It's saying that we are accountable to our Lord for what we do. Now let's look at the end of verse 1. Jude goes on to say, To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept, for Jesus Christ. We covered last week who Jude was addressing in this letter, but as a reminder, Jude is addressing a specific group of people which are true believers that made up this unknown body of Christ. He never addresses the apostates directly in this letter. We would assume he has already been ministering to this group of believers. In our passage before us, what we see is a shepherd's heart. Jude's salutation is much more than just friendly greetings. 
The words Jude used had a great impact on these believers he was addressing, but also it has a great impact on us today too. These false teachers came in and had shaken up the entire church. Jude, right off in his first few sentences, wants to remind the true believers of their position, relationship, security, and blessings they have in Christ. He wanted to reassure them of these four things right at the beginning of his letter. They needed to be reassured of these truths. Some had their faith weakened by these false apostates, so the assurance of their position in Christ was a needed reminder. Theirs was one of a spiritual battle that is much different than a spiritual battle we fight with the outside world. The battle was within the church. The battle, as we see later, was to contend for the faith. But they needed to be built up in their faith to withstand these attacks. And just on a side note, this week is the SBC convention. And there's men there that are fighting the fight within the church. And it's terrible what's going on in the SBC. I don't want to get off on a rant on that, so that's all I'll say about that. But we are in the battle today in the church. They needed to be reassured of these. Or I'm sorry, I already read that. So this was one of a spiritual battle that was within the church. But they needed to be built up in their faith to withstand these attacks. Jude now reminds them of three things. They are the called, they are the beloved, and they are the kept. So for the first one that we're going to look at is to those who are the called. These, there are two types of callings in Scripture. There is an external or general call and an internal or effectual call. God uses us to be the proclaimers of the external call through preaching the gospel to all. The gospel call is to be presented to all equally, but the effectual call is his work through the Holy Spirit. You cannot get anyone saved. Only God can do that through his Holy Spirit. But let's look at some distinctions between these two calls. The external or general call is an outward call to everyone who hears the gospel to repent of their sins. This call can be and usually is resisted by most. We can read through the Old and New Testament and see the general call. In Isaiah 45:22, in with no discrimination and indiscriminately, this is what God said to them. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are two clear examples of the external call. And then in Matthew 22.14 it says, For many are called but few are chosen. Here in this passage, we see both the external call and the internal call. The internal call or effectual call is the inward call that is powered by the Holy Spirit. 
It is a call that comes to those that have been predestined and chosen before the foundation of the world. What God predetermined in eternity past, namely choosing out some for redemption, is done in time through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This is a calling that cannot and will not be resisted. We understand from Scripture that a man left to himself will never repent of his sin, but the one that is effectually called will be led to repentance, justification, and eternal glorification. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. And then in 1 Peter 1, 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may be proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jude is reminding them that they have been called by God, the effectual calling. That is a calling with certainty of a secured future. And the second thing he says is, in our verse, to those who are the beloved in God the Father. When we are discussing the love of God, we must be very careful of going beyond Scripture, either on one side or the other. In other words, does God love everyone equally and in the same way? The answer to that is no. We must understand there are different types of love attributed to God. The first one we want to look at is God's benevolent love to all of his creation. God does have a love for all of his creation. This love is demonstrated in his temporal, I use the word temporal, compassion, kindness, patience, and goodness to his creation. The love of benevolence is the quality of goodwill towards others. His love and wrath work hand in hand in, to display his full glory. We cannot divorce one from the other because they are both true. Psalm 5.5, 5, I hate all who do iniquity. What are you going to do with that? He can love and hate at the same time that we can't do that. It's hard for us to do that, but he does. So we can't divorce one from the other because they are both true. Yet we see the character of God in the fact that while sinners continue to rebel against him, he gives them good things temporarily. Matthew 5, 43 through 45 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, he's our example. And it says, 
He causes the rain, the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This love is universal to all of his creation, but this love is not the same love he has for those he has chosen to save. At some point, the unrepentant will be, not be recipients of his common grace, and they will be judged for their rejection of him. So now let's look at the type of love Jude is expressing here in our passage when he said, we are beloved by God in God the Father. This is God's special love of complacency for the elect. And before you jump to your conclusions on what that word means, we're going to explain that. When we think of complacency, we have put our modern definition onto that word, which in our world means a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievement. But let's look at the theological definition. The theological definition of, of complacency is the special delight and pleasure God takes first in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the beloved of the Father, and second, in the pleasure God takes in his elect. By Christ's work of redemption, we share in this same exact love that the Father has with the Son. This is a special, unique love that only the elect possess. This love was placed on us in eternity past. In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, we read, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So this love is also secure, infinite, and eternal. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love is also the same love the Father has for the Son, which honestly, every time I think of that just blows me away. Jesus, in his prayer to his Father in John 17, 22 through 26, says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me maybe in them and I in them. Jude wants to affirm God's love for them that is unwavering, never changing, and for eternity. They are his beloved. This is 
an important reminder to these believers that have been shaken by false teachers. We are not only called beloved by God, but we are also kept in our salvation, which leads us to eternal life with Christ. And that leads us to the third point where Jude says, to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Now the New American Standard relate, or translates the word wording as kept for Jesus Christ, but it also can be translated kept by Jesus Christ. It does not change the meaning of this passage either way you want to translate it. We are both kept for and kept by Christ. This is pointing to the beautiful doctrine of preservation of the saints. Those that are truly his will never lose their salvation. We are secure in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. You should just like put that on your forehead. I'm secure in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. Jesus says in John 10, 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Once saved, always saved is true as long as we can define what that means because there are a lot of people that think they were once saved and then they think that they lost their salvation but the reality is they were never saved. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6 also says, For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Our salvation from start to finish is his doing. So stop taking credit for your salvation. Stop taking credit for your sanctification because it's all of God. Those that were chosen before the foundation of the world were called to be his beloved, whom he will preserve till the end when we are made complete in Christ. Okay, let's go to verse 2. Next we see Jude's prayer for them in this verse. Verse 2 says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Jude likes to use sets of three as we saw in our first verse, called, beloved, and kept. And now here in verse 2, we see another set of three, mercy, peace, and love. Those that are called, beloved, and kept are those that experience his mercy, peace, and love. Our salvation is rich with blessings beyond measure. Jude's prayer is that these blessings will be multiplied to the fullest measure possible. Here we have the aim of the letter. Jude wants God's mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied in them. Our prayer for each other should be the same, that we would experience these in the fullest extent in our daily walk in Christ. But first, let's look at mercy. Mercy continues to be heaped upon us by God. 
Mercy is his decision not to pour out wrath on those he has chosen, but rather to provide compassion and forgiveness to us. Mercy and pardon are the bedrock of our relationship with God. His forgiveness brings us peace with him and is manifested in his love to us. We need a continual blessing of his mercies as we live out our Christian life. His mercies are not only bestowed upon us in the initial repentance of our sins, but those mercies continue throughout our Christian life. When we commit sin, we will always find mercy with Christ in our repentance. Jude prays for the mercies of God to be multiplied upon the believers to give them the strength to withstand these false teachers. God's mercies must never be taken for granted. Without his mercies, we are a lost people. Those mercies are sustaining our lives. In turn, we are able to demonstrate mercies to others. Because we continue to sin, we need a constant dose of God's mercy. Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Just as God's mercy is experienced, so the peace he bestows upon us. It is a peace that is ever increasing in our lives through him. Jude's prayer for them is to have an ever increasing peace is timely because false teachers had sown discord in the flock. They had created chaos where peace should have been reigning. Peace with God is both positional and experiential. First, positional peace. Positional peace is that which is bestowed upon us through the life and blood of Christ. We who were once at enmity with God are now brought into a different relationship with God. We are positionally at peace with God. Romans 5 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we celebrate in the hope of the glory of God. But secondly, we also have experiential peace. We never lose our position of being at peace with God. This is firm and unshakable. Once in rebellion against God, but now in family relationship with God. God's peace is experienced in a deeper way as we abide in him. We can all probably look at our sanctification and see times where we were resting in his peace in a greater way than we have done at other times. This world can rob us of our experiential peace as we are rocked with the effects of sin in this world. Our own sin and the sin of others. Some of us may be going through hard times that have the potential to shake us. And during these times, we need a greater degree of the peace he gives. 
Psalm 29:11 says, "The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace." And in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, we read, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. If you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with not viewing things correctly, I would encourage you to study out the peace of God in that experiential way. We have nothing to fret. We should always be living in his peace and letting that wash over our souls every day. The next thing that we see that Jude prays for them is that is his love. His mercy and peace are tied with his love to us. His love is ever increasing in us by the Holy Spirit. As God fills us more and more with his love, that love overflows towards others. Earlier we looked at the special love he has for the elect, and now here we see that that love is, just not, is not just applicable to our position, but it also fuels our walk in him too. Ephesians 3:14 through 19 says, For this reason I bend my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner self, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. People, his love for us, I should say my beloved, because you are my beloved brothers and sisters, his love for us is not conditional. It does not find its residence in what we do, but rather in his good pleasure to pour his love upon us. We are so worldly at times, and we can withhold our love towards others if they displease us, but God is not like that. Yes, he disciplines us, but that is out of his love for us. And you can read Hebrews 12 if you need to understand that more. We can have assurance in his love, even in our times of disobedience and repentance. So not only are we positionally loved by God, but we are also experience that love each day. His love is poured into us through the Holy Spirit living in us. If the Holy Spirit lives in us, then we can have assurance that his love will grow in us more and more. Romans 5, 3-5 says, And not only this, but 
we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as you're going through those same type of things, remember that there is a purpose for those things, and that is to make you more holy and make you love Christ more. The false teachers had not exhibited love in this flock, but rather selfishness and abuses of others. They did not experience the mercy, peace, and love of God. Mercy, peace, and love are flowed vertically into us, and we in turn flow those qualities horizontally towards others. 1 John 4, 7 through 13 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love that word. Study it if you don't understand it. And then it goes on in verse 11. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. Let me challenge you today. If you don't have a tremendous love for the body of Christ and for unbelievers, let me just challenge you to examine yourself and see if the love of Christ is in you. We should be a people that love each other greatly. And that is demonstrated in our actions toward each other, in our care for each other. So in closing, let us never forget that we are owned by our master to do his will, to die to ourselves and live for his glory. Let us take hold of the fact that he loves us positionally and practically. His love is not conditioned on what we do, but rather because of his choosing to place his love on us. First in choosing us, and second in justifying us, and third in sanctifying us. And I guess we could have put a fourth in there and eventually glorifying us. We can be assured of our standing in him, even in the midst of trials, false teachers, and anything else the world throws at us. We have a sure and steadfast hope alone in him alone to finish that which he has begun in us. These believers that he's writing needed to hear this, and we need to hear it today. And we can also experience his mercy, peace, and love in the midst of chaos. As we are battling our sin in this world, we can rest in him. 
we can have secure rest in Him. We can have a practical, active love in Him. And we can experience His mercies in Him as we submit our lives to Him each day and find ourselves being obedient to our Master. And those five marks, I hope you do not forget those. And this week, I hope that at least some of you, if not all of you, think of yourselves as slaves of Christ. It changes the way you will walk out your life. It will change the way that you deal with your spouse. It will change the way you deal with your employees or employer. It will change the way that you are with friends, and it will change the way that you are with the unbelievers. I came to that truth many years ago, and I continue to try to remind myself on a daily basis, I am his slave. I cannot live for myself. I have to glorify him in my life because I love him for what he has done for me. And then may we experience the peace of God in our lives more and more. And King David was in the midst of a battle and it was evening. And he wrote Psalm 4.8 and he wrote this, In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. That is our God. That is our Lord who will protect us and keep us to the end. Let this wash over your soul this week and let it bring you to a greater level of love for our Lord and a greater desire to thrive in being a slave to Christ no longer in bondage to sin, but rather being kept in him and his love. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your mercies to us. We do pray now for Justin as he um, prepares to deliver the word to us. I thank you for this body of Christ. I thank you for those that are pursuing you with everything they have and they are struggling against their sin. And we now know that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and we can defeat that sin in you. We can't do that in our own works. So we're totally dependent upon you. We want to submit to you completely. We want to be devoted to you completely, and we want you to demonstrate that you own us completely. We thank you for your mercies, for the peace you give us and for the love you give us. In Christ's name, amen.